0: moment when the jury sent in a note and told the judge, we cannot reach a verdict on two counts. Do we have to? That was a key moment in the trial.
1: A good defense attorney can get a witness who is not criminal court savvy, who is under tremendous amount of pressure while they're on the stand to make mistakes.
0: Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades, that at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated, or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives, Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones, and they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BEST CASE. That's code BEST CASE.
1: Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and writer producer of Criminal Minds, which now goes on the history books of incredibly compelling, dramatic primetime TV with me today is...
0: Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor and producer on things to be named, Jim, that we can only hope will run as long as Criminal Minds did and be as beloved. That would be nice. Well, Jim, best case, worst case listeners have been writing in for weeks, months, and asking us to talk about a case in the news. Mm -hmm. And I think now's the time to do it.
1: Yeah, well, I know you're reticent to talk about prosecutions (laughs) when they're ongoing. Oh, yeah. And so the prosecution is no longer ongoing, at least in this first trial against Harvey Weinstein. And first, let's start. Who is Harvey Weinstein? He put the ogle in mogul, probably. He has been an incredibly successful, if not Ruthless producer.
0: I think I read he had something like 59 Oscars.
1: Pretty successful. Yeah. So he had a lot of power in Hollywood. A tremendous amount of power. That many Oscars, I I don't know if there are other people that can even come close. And why is that? Is it because he was so talented? Maybe. But while he was doing all that, he was also sexually assaulting women. And finally, he's being taken to task for it.
0: Finally being held accountable. And I know you don't like the word predator, Jim, and I know that's for obvious reasons, but certainly we can say his behavior over the years that we've learned about was predatory.
1: Right. But I will say, Francie, that I don't mind it as much in this situation because Harvey Weinstein had a very aggressive personality and he did come at people in a very predatory way. In other words, he wasn't just sweet-talking people and offering gifts and grooming them. What he was doing was putting them in a very difficult situation and then aggressively pursuing sex with them. And if they didn't want to, did it anyway. He forced himself on them. And let's just talk about what happened. We got, at first, a almost-hung jury. They had a partial verdict. They said they could not come to an agreement on counts one and three. And those were predatory sexual assault charges in the first degree. And they were the most serious charges. They
0: carried a life sentence, potentially.
1: Right. And the judge sent them back. And he said, work it out. He first asked the prosecution and the defense what they wanted to do. Did they want to receive a partial verdict and be hung on the other charges? And they both said no.
0: Well, let's go a little behind police lines on this, okay, Jim, or that. in this case, behind prosecution lines, behind court lines. So you have a trial for those of our listeners that are outside the country and who may be living under a rock because this has been covered, I think, in every paper, in a major paper in the world. But Harvey Weinstein... Jim has adequately described him. That's it, exactly who he was, and he was finally being held to account for these the serial sexual assault that he was accused of by literally dozens and dozens of women well, it's up in up to New York like City. A like hundred, it is dozens and absolutely lots of dozens. And he was he went to trial and the trial lasted for weeks. And he made a couple of key decisions early that I think helped him, including hiring a female defense attorney, which is kind of a classic thing for rapists because they they think it might immunize them with the jury. The jury might subtly think somewhere in the back of their minds, oh, well, if that woman sits next to him, he can't be that bad. That's, I think, part of the strategy. The prosecutor was kind of a legendary prosecutor. She's been in that office for 30 years and a bit of a specialist in sex crimes and and crimes against children. And so it was a real battle of two very good lawyers against each other. And that matters, I think, in a case like this. But what you say is so interesting to me and one of the first red flags that worries me about this case. So you get... All the well, let's talk about the charges first, and then we'll talk about the trial and the verdict and the and the jury potentially hanging up. So the charges you had five counts: one count of rape in the first degree, one count of rape in the third degree, one count of criminal sexual assault in the first degree, and two novel counts, Jim, that I really want to talk to you about and tell our listeners about. And that was this predatory sexual assault. It's a relatively new statute,
1: right? And it is meant to address situations like Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein.
0: Michael Jackson.
1: Michael Jackson. If he
0: was in the jurisdiction.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sure he was, but he's no longer around. And the law did not exist when he was around.
0: No, but what's interesting about this law to me, Jim, is it codifies or puts into law what we used to call similar transaction evidence or prior bad acts evidence, it's really sort of a combination of similar bad acts Mm -hmm. evidence and a conspiracy. Because as you know, Jim... You can bring in acts in the past that might normally be outside the term that you can prosecute someone. It's called the statute of limitations. You can bring in acts that are outside that term if they're part of an ongoing conspiracy. And so to me, this particular statute was designed to capture both things together. A bit of a conspiracy theory in a sort of an ongoing pattern of conduct and also allow you to bring in what used to be called prior bad acts.
1: Yeah, but I think the only thing that is lacking from the conspiracy laws is that there has to be two or more people in a conspiracy. You can have one offender, one predatory offender, and that's it under this law. But the fact is, I think you and I both know that in cases like Cosby, in cases like Michael Jackson, in cases like Harvey Weinstein, cases like Jeffrey Epstein, There are many more people that are actually, in a way, involved in a conspiracy in that they may be aiders and abettors. They may help procure victims. They may help set the stage so that there are people who disappear when the bad stuff's going to go down and reappear to get the victim away.
0: Well, and in Weinstein's case, he definitely had enablers where he had people at the production company or the studio that he that he founded who were writing the checks to some of these women, paying off these women. They clearly knew about the behavior. Whether that makes them a conspirator, I don't know. I don't know if someone's looking at that. I certainly hope they are. But Jim, from an inside baseball sort of standpoint here, legally speaking, I'm actually... This is going to sound weird to our listeners. I'm kind of glad that he was not convicted of the predatory sexual assault.
1: Because you're worried that that might be something that could be overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court on appeal.
0: Exactly right. I would be worried about that conviction. So that actually made me happy because the penalty for what he was convicted of – carries as much as it's it's as much as 29 years in prison, 25 on the sexual assaults in the first degree and four on rape in the third. That's a long time. He won't get out of prison. It's a pine box sentence. I was really worried about those predatory sexual assaults. Yeah.
1: Well, it's interesting. And because it's such a new law and there hasn't been any high profile case where that law has been tested, this would have been the perfect example, because I'm sure his attorney, his defense attorney, would have definitely gone after that issue in appeal. Now she loses that ability, at least on that predatory, that new predatory sexual assault charge.
0: Well, let's talk about the brave women, Jim, that the jury clearly believed. When we're talking about there were only, it surprises people and may surprise people around the world to know That there were only two victims who were named victims in this indictment, and they were Jessica Mann and Mimi Haley. Mm -hmm. And those two women had to testify. But what's so interesting about this case that I still think will form an issue on appeal is that you had a third woman, Annabella Shiora, come in and testify as part of these charges, the predatory sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So for each of the two named victims, Mann and Haley, the prosecution charged Weinstein with the predatory sexual assault charge, bootstrapping incidents or assaults against Annabella Shura that fell outside the statute of limitations, but were in the timeline for both of those other women, Mann and Haley. So in other words, Shura got to testify that in a past incident or multiple incidents, Weinstein raped her and sexually assaulted her. And so, those two, at least two incidents were used to try to prove to the jury that in the cases of Mann and Haley, he should be convicted right. of predatory sexual assault.
1: But he wasn't convicted of those. Now, does that mean that they didn't believe her or her testimony? Or does it mean that even with her testimony, they didn't feel it rose to the level of beyond reasonable doubt?
0: And We don't know. Well, we do know one thing, though. One of the most interesting things that happened in the trial before the verdict was that while the jury was deliberating, and this is something that people, I think, unless you've experienced it like we have, Mm. where you've got jury questions that sometimes are absolutely insane, we 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 should have a show about jury questions and how crazy they are and how they make the lawyers and the judge scramble to figure out how to answer things,
1: answer them, and then figure out what is the meaning. What does it it mean? Exactly, are they asking for that testimony because they believed it, and somebody wants to show somebody else? Or are they asking for that testimony because they disbelieved it?
0: And that's what happened. They asked specifically for the testimony of Annabella Shioria, But, Jim, they didn't ask for the direct. They asked specifically for the cross. And to me, that was a very significant moment. And I thought it meant that someone in the jury room or everyone in the jury room, we don't know yet, and maybe we'll never know, was having their doubts— about that testimony as part of that charge right
1: and here's the thing on cross-examination a good defense attorney can get a witness who is not criminal court savvy who has not spent decades in the courtroom who is under tremendous amount of pressure while they're on the stand to make mistakes to get confused to sort of go down the garden path and then answer yes when they really meant no, or to be uncertain about a particular fact, or to basically take away from the prosecution's case or add reasonable doubt. So I'm not surprised, and I do believe that I've certainly been involved in trials where, where one juror has basically locked horns with everybody else and basically taken a very extreme stance on one or more of the charges in a trial. And a lot of times what that does is it ends up in a hung jury. But there are times when the judge is able to convince the jury to get back in there and actually make a decision. And they do. And it literally takes a lot of yelling and screaming and crying and gnashing of teeth. To actually make that happen. And I know I've been in in cases where we could hear the jurors screaming and we could see the tears in some of them when they came out to propose the questions to the court. And we were like, what the hell is going on in there? And then later when you pull the jury, you find out Uh, anything goes on in there. I mean, it's craziness.
0: It is crazy. Well, and that's the thing about a jury trial that makes prosecutors so nervous because you never know what is going on in a jury room. You never know what is going to happen back there. You never know what they're actually focusing on. It's why it's so difficult to get any case to a guilty verdict. And we obviously had that in this case. It's one of the big reasons, Jim, why no prosecutor ever wants to go to trial on a one-count indictment mm. because there's no potential for compromise. right? And so it could be as simple, those two charges, Jim, it could be as simple as, like you said, one juror taking a position where I do not, I will not under any circumstances vote to convict on those two counts. And then someone tried to convince the juror by bringing in certain testimony or they then compromise. They all decide, well, OK, but that's fine. But then you'll at least agree to compromise and vote to commit right. on these so other you You're talking
1: three. about a compromise verdict. And this is something that a lot of prosecutors like and a lot of prosecutors don't like. And in other words, sometimes they will charge only one charge, only the top charge, like a first-degree murder charge or first-degree rape charge. And they won't charge any lesser included at all because they'd be afraid that even on these great facts in their case, the jury might come to a compromise, cut off the top charges, cut off the bottom charges, and find something in between. And that can be very frustrating to not only the prosecutor, but the victims and their families and the justice system in general. So it's really a, I don't know, it's a toss up whether or not You should do that. I know like there's been very celebrated cases that I consulted on, like the Casey Anthony trial where her daughter, Kaylee Anthony, was killed and we didn't know the cause. We didn't know the cause or the manner of death, really. But they charged her with first degree murder and only first degree murder And and sought the
0: death penalty and
1: sought the death penalty against a very young people say, beautiful young lady, Casey Anthony. And I advise strongly against that, not only because I'm against the death penalty, but because in these circumstances, the prosecution took the fact that Kaylee Anthony's skull was found with what looked like duct tape that may have been wrapped around the front of her face. But the problem is she was basically skeletonized and we have no idea when the duct tape was put on her face. And I gave the prosecution a hypothetical. What if Casey Anthony or somebody else put duct tape over the mouth and nose of Kaylee Anthony because she was in a car trunk for a few days? And I'm sorry, this is graphic, but decaying bodies tend to smell and seep out things.
0: Maybe it was just trying to cover that up.
1: It could very well have been postmortem. And just the fact that I could come up with that possibility meant that the defense attorneys could as well.
0: Well, and I find myself, Jim, you and I, we we dealt, we we did, I produced, I was one of the producers and you were obviously on this particular show, the case of Kaylee Anthony on oxygen. And I am in a lot of sympathy with the prosecution. I do believe in the death penalty. And so I understand the motivation of seeking the death penalty on someone who could, murder, because that's what they believe, murder their toddler. But even I'm not sure I would have in that particular case. Because like you say, when you cannot show the jury 100%, well, to what people think is 100% certainty, how the child was killed, just that she was, you it's a tough road to hoe yeah, on death penalty. So sure. in
1: that case, I suggested they do charge lesser included and don't go for the death penalty. And of course we know that the jury just couldn't find her guilty of a charge that would have meant she could be put to death. And so she's walking around. She is
0: walking around. Having not. Incredibly frustrating. Having
1: not been convicted of anything.
0: Which is not the case with Harvey Weinstein. But let's get back to the, let's get back to the sort of the legalities here, Jim. I'm still worried about appeals in the Harvey Weinstein case. And here's why.
1: Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com bestcase best case. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, our listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com bestcase best case. That's ZipRecruiter.com B-E-S-T-C-A-S-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
0: There are two reasons I want to discuss both of these with you because they're really interesting. One has to do with Annabella Sciorra and the other women's testimony against Weinstein, even though they were not named victims in the indictment. And then number two, I want to talk about possible juror bias. So let's start with the charges. It's an interesting legal conundrum, I think, that even though the jury found him not guilty, of those predatory sexual assault charges, I can virtually guarantee you that those charges will form the basis of an appeal. Because what the defense will say is that allowing Annabella Shiora to testify in counts of charge that the jury didn't credit, or at least it seems as though the jury didn't credit, prejudiced Harvey Weinstein so intently that the jury could not be fair on the other charges. That will be one of the appeal grounds, I suspect.
1: But, you know, I would argue in that situation that the jury spoke. The jury, if they didn't actually, the fact that they didn't convict on that charge says that they they were able to consider that testimony, but not necessarily find him guilty of that of those charges.
0: Right. So how could it be prejudicial right. when they didn't convict him of it?
1: They didn't. And so that's what the
0: prosecution will argue. Right.
1: But of course, I don't think it is a legitimate argument that the defense could make that, well, this was just a compromise verdict, because that happens all the time. Sorry, you can't appeal on that. No. And so if they actually convinced the holdout juror or jurors based on the fact that we won't vote for one and three. If you vote for two and four.
0: Okay, so I'm sorry. So that brings up a second point, And then the third one we'll talk about in a second about the uh, potential juror bias. But the second point I meant to bring up also has to do with that moment, Jim. Mm-hmm. That moment when the jury sent in a note and told the judge, we cannot reach a verdict on two counts. Do we have to? That was a key moment in the trial mm-hmm. with respect to an appeal because the defense wanted it to end right then. They wanted to take the jury's verdict as it stands. So that would have been a mistrial on two counts. We don't we, we think we know it's the predatory sexual assault counts. That's what it seemed to be in the numbering. I'm pretty sure the they, they were
1: I'm pretty sure they actually said 1 in 3. I think
0: you're right. I think you're right. So the defense was ready to take the verdict there. Mhm.
1: The prosecution argued that we should go have send them back and go to verdict.
0: Yes, and the judge agreed that they should go to verdict. Now, it sounds like it ended up in Weinstein's favor because they went ahead and acquitted him of those two counts. They didn't convict him. My first concern when I heard about it was that if he was convicted on those two counts after they'd said they couldn't reach a verdict, that was going to be a ground for appeal. Of
1: course, but it's it's it happens— I was going to say thousands of times, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of times in the history of U.S. criminal law. So I don't believe it's a valid argument for an appeal that the judge sent them back after they said they couldn't reach a verdict because they did reach a verdict. They thought they couldn't reach a verdict, but they did reach a verdict.
0: Well, so what's interesting about that, Jim, is to me a good criminal defense attorney, especially an appeal specialist, because those exist, appeal specialists. Is they may very well be able to say it is just simply not correct, and it isn't correct, for the judge to say you have to reach a verdict. It's not true. Mistrials happen all the time. What
1: did he say? You have to reach a verdict, or did he say go back and try again?
0: Well, he told them they had to reach a verdict on those two counts because that was their question. Do we have to reach a verdict on every count? And he said, yes, you do. Go back well, and then keep going. Well, that
1: is a potential issue for so appeal. So
0: even though they acquitted but him on those two I, counts.
1: But I think it could only be an issue if they had convicted him on those two counts. Maybe. Because they already said that they reached a verdict on the other counts. Unless they changed that verdict in that time period. And that would obviously be something that and could only they, be known by them. polling the jury. But
0: that's what the defense is going to argue. I, I'm certain on appeal is that the judge made an incorrect statement of law that they quote unquote must reach a verdict, which of course is not true. It's not like they get in trouble if they don't reach a verdict. It's not a law. Yeah, that but they I must don't reach know what
1: word in. he used. What what words he used? I mean, he did tell them to go back and reach a verdict. But did he say? It's your duty, and you can't come back out unless you do. I don't know.
0: I don't know. It'll be an that will. There's no doubt in my mind that that will be a focus on on the appeal. In addition to all the other women who've testified who were not under charge, but that's a very well settled area of law now. Similar transaction evidence, in effect, where you can bring in prior bad acts evidence. And the judge was very smart, or maybe it was the prosecutor, they were very smart in limiting the number of people. Like, you might think to yourself, well, why didn't all 100 women testify? Well, because at some point it does become Culled illegally it, yeah. prejudicial, and that was smart to limit it to just a few women. Let's
1: just sure. talk about prejudicial for a minute. Isn't every bit of negative testimony about any defendant prejudicial?
0: It is. I mean,
1: I just, I, I find it so out. Outrageous when, for example, in a child sex crimes case where you have pictures of the sex act, the crime being committed against the child, and then defense actually successfully arguing that the images are too prejudicial to show the jury.
0: So it's happened to me a million times, Jim. What? It happened to me all the uh, time. What? I had trials where literally before the trial started, we had to put the pictures up and the judge would decide. Which of the 10,000 images was I going to be allowed to show the jury and which ones were potentially too shocking and too prejudicial, even though the defendant put those images on his computer himself, uh, yeah, or made
1: the images or was the one in the damn pictures sexually assaulting the it's child. It's his own fault. It's unbelievable. He's sitting
0: in the chair because of his own conduct. That's like saying,
1: look, we're only going to let you say that this defendant hurt the victim when actually he took an axe and chopped the person's head off it's too prejudicial to actually tell them that he chopped somebody's head off and killed somebody we're gonna say he just hurt them that's ridiculous well, it's think about absurd. autopsy
0: photos I that, that I've talked about it in one of our previous episodes the child homicide case mm-hmm. that I had in Albany Georgia and autopsy photos I couldn't bring in any except the very early ones that showed the child before the autopsy just laying on the table because the judge said it was too prejudicial. It made me so angry because cause of death is very important to prove, especially in a homicide case where you have a child whose injuries you literally can't see because they're inside the child's head.
1: Right. And that's something that I understand because I, like many other human beings, really don't like the insides of human beings. And it's why I didn't go to medical school. And it's why I hated being present at an autopsy or even seeing the autopsy photos. I just don't like it. It's very disturbing to me. And I think the judge was responding to that. Unfortunately, the judge didn't say, okay, so what we're going to do is crop these images very tightly, only around the injuries. So you can't even necessarily identify where it is on the kid's body, but just show that this is the extent of the injury. That would have been what I would have argued for. And unfortunately, some judges just don't let them in at all.
0: They do. And that's, you know, prejudice is is a really interesting issue in a trial that you always have to watch out for just like bias, which brings me to kind of the last point I wanted to discuss with you, at least for this episode, Jim, and that is juror bias. Juror bias is something that good jury selection or voir dire or voir dire, if you're from Uh, South Georgia, voir dire, um, as I used to hear. My cousin (laughs) Vinny. That's right, voir dire. You used to hear that all the time. Bias is really important to make sure it's not in the trial. And what's come out is that one of the jurors on the Weinstein case is in the middle of a book, of writing a book herself about a predatory older man who takes advantage of women in his power for sexual abuse and sexual favors.
1: And is this book related on, based on, at all?
0: I I don't know any of those things. I don't think so. I don't think it's based on the Weinstein case.
1: How long has she been writing that book?
0: I don't know. These are all questions that should have been explored in jury selection and to me any good judge because the defense moved to strike her for cause, right? So let's let's talk a little bit of let's talk a little bit about inside baseball again. There are two kinds of strikes when you're doing jury selection. There's a peremptory Mm -hmm. strike and a strike for cause. Strikes for cause are unlimited. It's just when you can convince the judge that there's some reason this juror can't be fair or shouldn't be a juror, they get thrown out basically by the judge. Peremptory strikes. There are limited numbers of them, and the prosecution gets a certain number, and the defense gets a certain number. And those are
1: the ones where they don't have to explain a damn thing about it. Right. We just don't. We just want you to go home.
0: Right. Other than a, other than a, you know, a prejudicial reason or a racial reason, you can get rid of someone because you don't like the color of their shirt. Uh, me, I always got rid of people like engineers. I never had an engineer on a jury because I was worried, Jim, that they required perfect evidence Mm. and perfect evidence doesn't exist. It's just one of those stereotypes that's based in some fact. It may not always be true. I'm sure Mm -hmm. lots of engineers, please, engineers out there, don't write me hate mail. I'm sure many of them would make good jurors, but I was never going to take that chance.
1: So this juror admitted that she was writing this book and the defense tried to get her thrown out. Yes. For cause? Yes. And the judge said no.
0: Yes. The judge apparently thought, well, I assume, again, this is an assumption, the judge, I assume, went through the questions with her and asked her if she could set that aside, if anything about this trial was going to be impacted by the fact that she was writing a book. But Jim, think about it. If you're writing a book on that topic and you have the opportunity to sit on the case, that suddenly becomes a personal, investment for you. It could literally land her a book deal because she's been a juror on this famous case, but also research for her book, material stories. I I do not understand why she got on the jury. I really don't. I'm worried. I think it's a problem. But
1: I mean, I wonder though, because people could have multiple ways of finding out information about cases like this. Weinstein's not the only offender out there. There have been offenders like this out there for probably as long as there has been an out there. And people can have experiences in their life or in their families. And of course, good Wadir should unearth that, but you can't literally come up with every possible scenario. And somebody might have, and I don't know that they necessarily have to, could be forced to disclose that they were victimized in that way. I mean, does that make you an ineligible juror, I don't know. And I don't think I don't think people should be treated badly because they were the victims of a crime.
0: Well, I think it happened in every child abuse case I ever tried or child pornography case I ever tried where the defense would move to strike for cause. Anyone who said they'd been victimized as a child and every judge I ever practiced in front of agreed. Okay,
1: I get that. I'm
0: not saying it's right, but that's what happens. I
1: know, but that is a form of prejudice that maybe shouldn't happen. And it also forces people to disclose something that they shouldn't have to disclose. And so I wonder how many times that hasn't been disclosed.
0: I assume it has. But I've told people I've never tried a child abuse case without having at least one person on the jury panel stand up. A lot of times they'd ask to to go private, that is to talk to the judge outside Mm -hmm. the presence of the other jurors. But sometimes they would just stand up. At least one person, every child exploitation trial I ever had, at least one person stood up. And many times, probably half the times this happened to me, they said, this is the first time I've ever told anyone about this. Mm. And it was there in a public setting. So it's a very difficult thing, obviously, to disclose. And I'm certain there are people who got on juries who didn't disclose because they didn't want to. And I certainly understand and respect that. But with respect to this woman on Weinstein. I'm not saying it's right or wrong to leave her on the jury, but it's definitely a ground for a game. I know.
1: So it's def- that's definitely going to be an issue. But hopefully, definitely. it won't be a successful issue. But let's talk about a little more bias, a totally different kind of bias. And that is Harvey Friggin Weinstein walking into court every day with a walker and having two six foot six or six foot eight guys on either side of him, and him being hunched over and wearing frumpy suits and being unkempt, not shaving, not combing his hair. How about that? So that the media and the jury would see him as this pudgy, poor, pitiful pitiful guy.
0: Yeah, I suspect the defense actually was excited when the prosecution's witnesses to a woman, if you will, described in graphic detail how unattractive Weinstein is without his clothes on, including in very intimate and graphic detail about his genitals and how unappealing and unattractive and misshapen and all sorts of terrible other words you I can't use. You think the use. defense like that? I think they did because I think it made him look pathetic oh. and not like a monster. And that, I think, played to the defense attorney's advantage because one of the arguments she made to the jury was that they were shaming him and They were trying, the prosecution was trying to say that just because he's an unattractive man, no woman would want to engage in voluntary sexual activity with him. And we all have plenty of examples in our life where that's not true. All
1: right. But here's the thing. Attraction is individual. So all she was having to prove was that these women, not every woman, but these women who were victimized by him, found him unattractive, would never have done that had he not forced himself on But Jim,
0: I think it also played into the defense's hands because these women all were quite willing to describe in graphic detail how unappealing his genital area was. But all these women also then continued to talk to him and maintain a bit of a relationship yeah. and even say nice things to him. So that played into defense hands, not just because in and of itself, it makes people think how could they be assaulted and then continue a relationship, but how could they have been assaulted by someone so nasty and continue a relationship? That's why it think played into defense hands.
1: Because, well, all right, but it's the answer is because of his position. This is their work. They have to continue their work or... They suffer the consequences. Yes. They should not have to stop doing their chosen profession just because this guy is a predatory sexual offender. Now, at least he's convicted of it.
0: He is. At least we know
1: for the time being, he won't be doing that anymore.
0: No, but my only point is that I think that it, I think it was a bit of a misfire by the prosecutor. I'm pretty sure I'd have done the exact same thing, but I think it might've been a misfire by the prosecutor in painting him as this gargantuanly hideous, deformed, nasty human being that allowed the defense then to play on that. And I don't know, maybe that played into the jury's decision not to convict him of the predatory offenses. Maybe I don't know.
1: not I don't know, but let's hope that He's prosecuted in other jurisdictions, and I know California wants him.
0: He's facing charges right here in L.A., Jim.
1: Right. And I hope that he continues to be prosecuted over and over and over again until every attempt at his appeal is gone. Because a guy like that, one, has hurt so many people and the ripple effects. I mean, I can't imagine the downstream effects of what he has done. But he's also really disparaged an entire industry, and we need to get rid of him. And we need to know that everybody in the entertainment industry is on notice, that if you help somebody like him, if you do the slightest little thing, you're committing a crime too, especially in terms of these predatory sexual assault charges. If you're helping somebody in a conspiratorial way, you could actually be charged with those underlying charges yourself.
0: Well, and it's so just
1: beware.
0: Well, and Jim, it's just like the Epstein case. This Weinstein case may result in charges uh, of other people. I haven't heard of any charges. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. I hope someone's investigating it to see whether conspiracy is a potential charge. But we do know he's facing justice in California. People out there want to know what that means. Well, what it means is he'll get sentenced in New York and California will lodge a request. Almost instantaneously, they'll lodge a request, and they will ask for New York to send Weinstein to California to face charges. They will. They always do. All the states cooperate with each other. They'll send him to California. He'll face trial here. No matter what happens here, he'll go back to continue serving his sentence in New York. And then if he's convicted in California and he gets a sentence, after his sentence is Over in New York, he would be sent to California to serve his sentence. So there is efficacy in the justice system in California getting in and prosecuting Weinstein. Some people are like, oh, well, if the judge gives him 29 years, which is going to be a life sentence, why would California waste their resources? Well, first of all, as we've discussed, I think there are some grounds for appeal here. I don't think he'll be successful, but he may be.
1: Right. But on top of that, I believe the prosecutors in L.A. should offer him a deal. We will not prosecute you in L.A. or we will prosecute you on one charge if you actually admit everyone that you sexually assaulted every single case. If you come forward and you give these women their justice, of course, that would open him up civilly. But the man is worth what? Billions? Who knows? Right. I mean, he's probably got money all over the place. Why should he be enjoying that money?
0: Well, he shouldn't. And I doubt he will because I think he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But I would be shocked if he ever, ever admits any misconduct. Also, he won't do it while there are appeals pending in New York. And I think those things are going to happen at the same
1: time. But when L.A. begins the criminal trial process here, he may have second thoughts.
0: Well, we'll, we're certainly going to follow it. And we're going to follow the sentencing and see what the judge, who is known to be a tough sentencer, actually does to Weinstein and how the appeal progresses. Lots to talk about.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for talking about it. Until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba and hosted by Wonder.
0: You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness to Light can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know?
0: Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community.
1: When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you.
0: Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more
1: that's d the number 2 l.org